Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, and thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast. Episode 249, Japan Enters the War. The attack on Pearl Harbor was over. Most Japanese officers, as word spread, hailed the courageous victory and the blow dealt to their enemy's pride. Others were more contemplative, as in, yes, a successful strike. But what now? And as we have seen, the two Japanese representatives in Washington, Kurusu and Nomura, were late with their delivery of the vaguely worded declaration of war by almost two and a half hours. So, when all was said and done, Japan had begun a war it had not officially declared. Be that as it may, it was time for Tokyo to make its declaration. Navy Minister Shigetaro Shimada went over the results of the surprise attack with the cabinet just before sunrise in Tokyo. Most attending were pleased, but also had to be asking themselves, what now? Still, a declaration of war was written up and sent to the emperor via the privy seal, Koichi Kido, Hirohito's most intimate advisor. As Kido entered the palace, the Japanese Broadcasting Corporation was about to make its own announcement. The message began, We now present you urgent news. The Army and Navy Divisions of Imperial Headquarters jointly announced at 6 o'clock this morning, December 8th, that Imperial Army and Navy forces have begun hostilities against the Americans and British forces in the Pacific at dawn today. As the military controlled the government, it also controlled the people of Japan by controlling the news that they were exposed to. Hence, loudspeakers set up along the streets echoed this message. Some cheered in reaction as they knew this was expected of them. But others, again thinking beyond just this day, were struck numb. Just before noon, Emperor Hirohito put his seal on the declaration, thus making it official. By then, Prime Minister Tojo was already on the radio, giving his address. He explained that the West was trying to dominate their part of the world, so it was Japan's responsibility to annihilate this enemy and to establish a new stable order in East Asia. He went on that it would be a long war, that everyone must do their part for victory, and in the balance were the lives of 100 million people. As the continental U.S. geared up for an active war against Japan, the various outposts to the West were put on alert. But it wasn't until 7 p.m. Washington time on December 7th, 8 a.m. in Manila, and 2 p.m. at Pearl Harbor, 
that General Leonard Garrow, who would be commanding the 29th Infantry Division in three months' time, that would eventually land on Omaha Beach in Normandy on June 6, 1944, subsequently giving its name to the 29th Infantry Division Memorial Highway, a road that I use practically every day of my life, reached General MacArthur on the phone in the Philippines. The message was to the point. We strongly believe you are Japan's next target. MacArthur's reply was equally terse. We are ready for them, and our tails are up in the air. By this, Garrow could be forgiven for believing this meant MacArthur's planes were currently in the air to avoid another disaster like Pearl. This was, strictly speaking, not the case. As word of Pearl Harbor had gotten out, and the warnings came from D.C., MacArthur's air commander, General Lewis Brereton, asked two and a half hours after that phone call, and again later, for permission to send his B-17s to bomb the Japanese positions on Formosa, modern-day Taiwan, about 200 miles or 320 kilometers north of the Philippines. MacArthur's current role was commander of U.S. Army forces in the Far East. During the last year of peace between the United States and Japan, the plan labeled Rainbow Five, that part of it that dealt with the defense of the Philippines, had been altered by MacArthur, with Washington's blessing. Previously, it had called for a pulling back of the troops to the south, to the Bataan Peninsula in Manila Bay, if war came with Japan, and to hold out until help came. Now the idea was to use the island's B-17s to attack and sink Japanese ships as they came south. MacArthur knew that if the Japanese landed, the Philippine and American troops there, with their two battalions of M3 light tanks, would be no match. Regardless of how he placed his men throughout the island. Which is why Air Commander General Brereton became more agitated every time he called and was not given permission to send his bombers to the north. Nevertheless, MacArthur's Chief of Staff, General Richard K. Sutherland, would not allow him to talk to their commander. Besides, Sutherland added, the reconnaissance of Formosa was sketchy and out of date, so a decisive raid could not be planned and executed which wasn't the point, as far as Brereton was concerned. It was MacArthur's own modified plan of defense that he was trying to enact, only to be told, we do not want to make the first overt act. As for the supposed threat of Japanese troops on Formosa, the threat was real enough. In fact, pilots from the 11th Japanese Air Fleet had been trying to take off that morning to strike at Clark Field, the main airstrip of MacArthur's, located just to the northwest of Manila, the Philippine capital. As such, it was the Japanese on Formosa that felt fear, believing that B-17s from the Philippines would soon be raining destruction down on them and their waiting airplanes. Still, a few planes left Formosa that morning, but only bombed the most northern section of the main Philippine island, Luzon. 
but that was enough, to make Air Commander Brereton call MacArthur's office again at 9.25 a.m. local time, but he was told no again. Then MacArthur, with no explanation, changed his mind and let his B-17s loose. But he had waited so long, by then the Japanese to the north were up in the air, which completely changed the situation for Brereton, from a preemptive bombing, which his command was built on, to active defense, which it was not. To be sure, the American bombers were airborne, but circling their respective bases as not to be caught on the ground. But now that MacArthur had given the word, they would all have to land for refueling. But at that moment, on the way to Luzon, the Philippines' largest island, were 196 enemy fighters and bombers. Reports of enemy planes spotted started coming in from the northern tip of Luzon to Nielsen Field, just to the southeast of Manila. There, Colonel Alexander Campbell, Brereton's aircraft warning officer, sent a warning to Clark Field at 11.45 a.m. local time. But it did not get through. So he tried the radio, but like at Pearl Harbor just before its attack, certain posts were unmanned as those persons were getting breakfast. Here, it was lunch. After another try, Colonel Campbell got a faint call through, and the junior officer on the other end promised to tell the base commander of the pending threat. And yet, by ten minutes after noon, all the island's fighters were up in the air, waiting to deflect the coming attack. Except, that is, at Clark Field. For whatever reason, that junior officer had not passed on the message, or it had not been acted upon, which is hard to believe. Either way, Clark Field, MacArthur's main airstrip, was the only airfield on Luzon not to have a protective fighter umbrella overhead. Fifteen minutes later, at 12.25, 27 Mitsubishi high-level bombers were just coming over Tarlac, another airbase 20 miles north of Clark Field. And it was Clark that was their target. Meanwhile, the men of Clark, who did not get the warning, were having lunch or lazily loading bombs onto B-17s. As for the P-40B Warhawk fighters that should have been in the air protecting the field, its personnel and their war machines were resting in the cockpits at the end of the field. Just before two waves of 27 bombers each with 35-0 fighters overhead started attacking Clark, KMZH Radio announced that Clark Field was under attack. The men listening started to laugh. Indeed, some of them thought that the reports of Pearl were fake as well, something to keep the troops on their toes. At 12.35, 10 hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese bombers began their first attack run over Clark Field. Also, every American plane was on the ground. It was Pearl Harbor all over again. One National Guardsman looked up, saw the planes, and yelled, Here comes the Navy, as in, it was showtime. Another asked, Why are they dropping tinfoil? But it was a third that connected the dots. That's not tinfoil, and those are goddamn Japs! 
Some of the pilots at the other end of the field started running for their P-40B fighters. Lieutenant Joseph Moore, in command of the fighters, and two other pilots reached their planes and took off. Four others hoping to join them lost their planes to the falling bombs. The National Guardsmen, manning their 37mm and 3-inch anti-aircraft guns, started firing shots off at the enemy. This was the first time they had fired live ammunition. Such was the state of their training. Yet none of their bullets or shells would hit a target. The highly trained and experienced Japanese pilots came in, dropped their ordnance, and moved on in a matter of minutes. Then they were gone. As the sound of their roaring planes faded away, the Americans around Clark Field began to emerge from their hiding places. Around them, everything, as if done by a single wave of a magic wand, was smoke, fire, destruction, wounded, and the dead. In their wake, the Japanese had destroyed half of the B-17s and one-third of the P-40s. But as for Lieutenant Moore and the two other pilots who managed to take off, they were about to find out that there was little difference in between losing their fighter to a bomb while on the ground versus taking on a zero up in the air. As Moore and his two comrades increased speed and altitude, they found themselves thunderstruck that they could not catch up to the zero fighters. Moreover, the enemy pilots could not help but show off the maneuverability of their fighters. Again, the Americans were astonished by the enemy plane's speed, agility, range, and by the ability of the pilots. For years, the Americans had been told that there were no decent Japanese pilots. That clearly was not the case. But other Americans would learn this in the coming days, just before they lost their lives. Ironically, just over a year ago, there had been one man who had learned all of this and had indeed shared the information with the War Department. Colonel Claire Chenault, working for the Chinese Nationalist Government and head of the Flying Tigers, had already worked out that American planes could not win in a dogfight against Zeros. They had to be dove down on, fired at, and then sped away from. That was the only way to survive, as things now stood, in American aviation technology. But that information was never passed on. Chenault had ruffled too many feathers for his advice to be heeded by the establishment. To the west, northwest of Clark Field, near the coast, was another, smaller airstrip, Ilba Field. There, the destruction was such that the fighters soon left as there was nothing else to shoot at. So, they made a pass at Clark Field, and in their runs, only one B-17 survived. Fortunately, two other flying fortresses were out on reconnaissance that would survive, as did 11 more that had been sent south that morning to Mindanao, the second largest Philippine island. Most of the still-intact P-40s at Clark did not survive this second attack. Back in Washington, reports continued to come in 
throughout December 7th about the losses at Pearl. The number of dead, wounded, and missing steadily grew, as did the number of support vessels that were now out of action. This would continue for the days to come. However, the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor was not the first clash of Japan's war in the Pacific against the Westerners. As far back as the 1930s, various Japanese leaders had pushed the idea behind their Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. In essence, Asia would no longer be ruled and ruined by Western powers. Asia would come together and defend itself, all under Japanese control, of course. Further, as Japan was suffering under an economic blockade of the Americans and British, intertwined in the sphere was the idea that other countries, like Malaya and Burma, would have to be occupied to give Japan the resources it needed to prosper and to continue to manufacture its various weapons of war. But in order to take Malaya and Burma, the Japanese military decided that many of Thailand's ports, airfields, and railways would be needed. However, as Thailand was not currently being ruled by Western power, Japan did not want a conflict there, just to use the country's various transportation systems. Hence, starting in January of 1941, the Japanese had been in secret talks with Thai Prime Minister Philbun Songram about its needing free passage. Yet, by early to mid-1941, Songram, who did not trust the Japanese, felt that it would be hard for him to say no. By then, France, the former ruler of Indochina to the east, was out of the war, which Japan took control of by the summer of that year. Further, Britain seemed to be on its knees against Nazi Germany, barely holding the aggressor from its home island. Then, there was the Americans, who, despite its economic blows against Japan, was staying neutral. Neutral about China, neutral about Europe. So what help could Thailand expect? The talks between the military-controlled Japanese government and Prime Minister Sokram continued throughout 1941, with no firm decision being reached. Indeed, as late as December 1st, one day before the message, Climb Mount Nikita, was released, which would set the war in motion, Prime Minister Tojo still had no idea what Sokram would do when Japanese troops landed in Thailand and came down south from Indochina. Finally, on December 2nd, the Prime Minister of Thailand told the Japanese they could pass through his territory, but certain areas were off-limits, and Thailand would regain, once Japan was the master of the surrounding territory, certain lands lost to it, to Burma to the northwest and Siam to the east. But as the Japanese would find out, Sagram was still, despite the agreement, none too trusting of the Japanese. Still, as the Japanese considered this a done deal, their invasion fleet for Operation E set out from Japanese-controlled southern China. Oh, and on the day that the Thai Prime Minister made the agreement with Japan, he told the British that his country was 
probably soon to be invaded by the Japanese. As he had with Greece, Prime Minister Churchill sent off a stirring message to the Prime Minister of Thailand to lift his spirits. If you are attacked, defend yourselves. We shall regard an attack on you as an attack upon ourselves. Kind words indeed, but they could not conjure up more men, more equipment, or more time to train, for Lieutenant General Arthur Percival, General Officer Commanding, Malaya Command. And like London, Percival knew that any Japanese landings in Thailand or Malaya would eventually mean an attack on Singapore at the southern end of the Malay Peninsula. And that massive island was to house the British fleet once it could be spared from European waters that would see the British, with their Commonwealth forces once again, dominate the Far East. As we have seen, the war in Europe had already forced the desperate British to pull many soldiers from India, Australia, and New Zealand. Many of these went to the Middle East or North Africa. And after France fell, India would go on to create six new divisions, as it was believed that Japan would be tempted to get involved, given the changing status of so many colonial powers. To be sure, these various soldiers were not squandered, as the Italians had been pushed back in North Africa, and Persia was occupied in August of 1941, which guaranteed for the Allies 10 million tons of oil from the Persian oil fields every year, not to mention the now-secure Persian land bridge that would allow continued supplies to Russia. On paper, this pulling out of so many Commonwealth troops from India, Australia, and New Zealand for the West should not have weakened the defenses of Britain's Far East possessions. Indeed, it was the Royal Navy's job to protect such faraway places. However, by 1939, through various naval agreements, Germany and Italy were close to challenging the British for the high seas, and if Japan should follow route, London would be forced to focus on one sea at a time and the people of the Far East Commonwealths knew which section would receive priority. But should war come to both sides of the globe, the British, with their Commonwealth nations, came up with an idea that only modern technology made possible. First, a massive naval base would be built up on Singapore Island to hold the main fleet once it was sent east. And second... As for the first line of defense, that was now the job of the Royal Air Force. The RAF in Malaya would be brought up to 21 squadrons, some 300 fighters, more if possible. The limited army there would now focus on protecting the aircraft that would protect the wider area. The man selected to command this air force was Air Chief Marshal Sir Robert Brooke Popham. He would be the Far East commander from October 1940 on, and the general officers commanding in Malaya, Burma, and Hong Kong would report to him. So even if the worst came to British-held territory in the Far East, as long as Singapore held out, then one day 
When possible, the British Empire, with its powerful fleet, would come to the island port and from there recapture all that had been lost. The question was now, what would the Japanese do? That was answered by a series of events. Japan had taken Chinese territory in the early 1930s, and again starting in 1937. The Western powers were not happy with this, but at the same time hoped that the war there would not widen and thus threaten their territory. Then, in April of 1941, Japan and Russia signed a neutrality pact, which allowed both to focus on territorial gains in other directions. That was followed by Nazi Germany invading Soviet Russia in June of that year. But then, Japan took advantage of a weak France by occupying the rest of Indochina the following month. This concerned the British, as Japanese bombers were now within range of Singapore, the one place that could not fall if all-out war came to Asia. But this new development also gave the Americans pause, as it seemed that the U.S.-controlled Philippines was about to be encircled by Japanese-controlled territory, which pushed Washington to strengthen its economic sanctions against Japan as a warning, to wit, the British followed the Americans in kind. But this is only the end of the beginning of the story of the War of the Far East. The Americans and British, through Western eyes, badly miscalculated the character of the Japanese, though who were now desperate were still proud and audacious. Next time, Japan's Operation Number 1 will be launched that will, if it succeeds, see the Japanese as the new masters of Asia. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So on the next episode that is coming out this weekend, I will uh, thank all of the new members and the people that have donated and who I really appreciate because I'm having to buy so many new books about the Pacific War, the Asia Command, that kind of thing. So um, I'll get to that next time. I did want to thank everyone who's been responding on Facebook and emails who have been recommending titles, Nick and the others who have uh, been suggesting stuff because I'm trying to find detailed accounts of the various wars. And as you all know, when Operation Number One comes, uh, the Japanese hit so many different places within a short amount of time. So I'm trying to figure out how to tell that story. But before I let you go, I just wanted to give a quick hello and congratulations to Emily in Maryland, who is getting married this month. Her and her father, Jeff, listened to the podcast together, which I think is so cool. So congratulations to Emily. Jeff, I hope you enjoy the book. And like I said, I was very jealous. I almost decided to steal it when you sent it to me. So anyway, um, congratulations to her. And again, I will get the next episode out uh, as soon as I can. And then I get the wonderful task of trying to figure out how to balance out the Middle East, North Africa, Europe, and the Asian theater. So, yeah, looking forward to that. Take care, everyone. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.